In nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetur Jesus Christus. Et in secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Joined today on the Catholic Empire series with co-host Luis Medina. <laughs> How you doing, brother? My brother, I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite. I love, love being here. Yes, it's always a pleasure. Today is Columbus Day in the United States. Yeah. It's also celebrated on Our Lady of the Pillar, uh, October 12th in other countries wow. in the, of the Americas. But it's a great day uh, for any any of the Americans, uh, north or south. A mm -hmm. uh, great day for the Americas, and which is what we'll get into. Why Columbus Day is Catholic. So we'll be talking about uh, the the new name for this day is Indigenous Peoples Day, and mm -hmm. why that is. We'll talk about that. Talk about everything. So before we get into that, Luis Medina, if you don't know him, go to the links below for our Catholic Empire series, which is current. With this video, it's seven parts. We have uh, Spain, the Black Lies Against Spain, and then we have five or six different historical videos where Luis yeah. takes us through the history and the glory of Catholic Spain um, and Portugal and uh, the Christianization of half of the world, the Americas. Yeah. So, uh, But Luis is from the Reconquista Network. What is happening lately with Reconquista? Oh, thanks. Uh, uh, shout out to all the subscribers to the Minimum of Catholic and Reconquista Network. Reconquista Network, we have the latest. Uh, we have our political podcast in Spanish where I explain uh, U.S. policies and how they affect the Hispanic interest, whether it's here in the U.S. or in the world, since it's the second most spoken language. Uh, and also we do interviews with, uh, you know, just kind of like the Minimum of Catholic with historians, professors, old, you know, people from all walks of life who actually show us what it's like to be Catholic outside of the church. So like an entrepreneur, you know, like, okay, how do you keep your faith in being an entrepreneur? Things like that. The latest one, um, and, and I wish, you know, probably going to work one in English, was about the Cristero War, but a historian, a French-born Mexican national, French historian, Jean Mayer, and talk about that Cristero, he even interviewed back in the day to uh, uh, with uh, Calles' own daughters. You know, it oh. was, it was, yeah, yeah, it was uh, oh. quite an interview. You know, it was, I loved it because it was one of those complex interviews that get, get you out of the comfort zone. Um, it was complex without being like tiresome. So, anyway, you can check it out if you speak Spanish at my channel. Uh, it's totally free. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll link that below Reconquista Network. Uh, so, why is Columbus Day Catholic? Before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey, Luis. Mm -hmm. You you told me once, you shared once on this channel about you had fallen away from the Catholic faith. You would you were actually at a Protestant seminary, I think. Yeah. And that's when they started talking bad about Spain. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, the story of you kind of coming around to that? It's uh, uh, in short, it's a very interesting journey because unlike a lot of people who lapse, you know, become lapsed Catholics or walk away from the faith, I really didn't have any qualms with the faith. It's just my faith was dead within inside as I discovered Protestantism, you know, and that zeal for the word. I became um, passionate about it and I went that route and walked away from the church about 10 years without having the Eucharist, which is a big, long time, to be honest. Well, um, as I hunger for the word more and more and more, um, like a lot of people may relate, I started with um, Presbyterianism, you know, with R.C. Sproul, things like that. And then I eventually go to seminary here in Fort Worth, Southwest Seminary. And while I was in seminary, I was starting here um, doing different classes. I'm not going to name names, but uh, just uh, bashing about Catholicism and not necessarily in a mean spirit. It's just misinformation. And I will look at the, you know, papal documents and the document, like, it's like, wait a minute, there's not a uh, concordance here. Something's missing. Now, I would expect a pastor to be misinformed about Catholicism. You know, often that happens, sadly. But we're talking about professors here, right? We're talking about academics. And um, eventually, 
in systematic theology, everything started making more sense. And I had to defend by random chance, uh, pedo baptism, you know, infant baptism. And that kind of, I mean, I already was uh, on that journey, but that kind of settled it. So I talked to one of my advisors in uh, the seminary and said, hey, look, Professor X shall not be named. Um, Catholicism started making more sense. The more I study this, the more it looks like this is the real deal. And I remember that advice that he gave me. He said, look, Luis, just because Catholicism makes sense does not mean you have to be Catholic. He said, okay, uh, you can borrow the good elements of Catholicism and then you can start your own thing. And <laughs> oh, I man. was like, yeah, and wow. I, I, I didn't respond to anything. I was just like, why? But I remember thinking that moment, that chair, I said, I'm not here looking for comfort. I'm here looking for truth. And if that makes me like, you know, if that offends me, oh, well, suffer it, Luis. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is not about you and your feelings. This is about truth. So that's kind of what kind of started selling things. So I started going to St. Barth, uh, Bartholomew uh, here in South Fort Worth, Father Medina, who's retired, no, you know, relationship, anything like that. Um, started guiding me through this. And uh, believe it or not, I started sneaking to morning masses and then going to seminary. <laughs> so uh, long story short, eventually uh, talked to uh, Father Jim from St. Andrew. Uh, say hi, by the way, a spiritual advisor. And uh, he helped me go back, you know, get back in the church, uh, just like with a good confession and all that. And I take that experience. I'm very thankful for my Protestant years. That's where I learned uh, to be passionate about the Bible. I love scripture. But obviously, I'm, the reason I'm thankful for it is because in the most um, anti-sacramental place in Fort Worth, which is Southwestern Baptist Seminary, because they don't have sacraments, don't believe in sacraments, I found the sacrament, you know, especially the Eucharist. The rest, my friend, is history. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful testimony to grace. And before we go any further, I, I do want to plug, please support uh, Luis over on Patreon, patreon.com slash M like Mary slash Reconquista Network. So please go in and support Luis and his good work. Um, he does fully Spanish and fully English, does the English yeah. over here right now, does Spanish over there. So uh, yes, please support this excellent work. So tell us more about the, the ways that... Um, there's been a um, a black legend campaign uh, against Spain. Uh, we've talked about this extensively, but you sort of noticed it. Um, how has there been a black legend campaign? Can you touch on Indigenous Peoples Day? Um, what what's the strategy? How, how is this misinformation working? Well, uh, so far it's working pretty good, unfortunately. And the way I try to explain this to people is, look. There is a purpose. This is bigger than just Spain or whatever it is. They try to erase your origins, at least for all of us here in this side of the Atlantic. This is an important day for you, whether you're Anglo, Dutch, German, Spanish, uh, Native American. It doesn't matter. This is an important day and a day we should be embracing. It is very simple. I always say it this way. If you don't know your past, you won't know where you're going to the future. And if you don't know your past, somebody else will define it for you. And unfortunately, it's not going to be according to the word of God. The reality for us as Catholics, as Christians in general anyway, is our origins are through thanks to the Catholic Church. So it was because of the Catholic Church that Columbus sailed to America. And I will explain this, especially to the Catholic faith particularly, you know, um, but because you cannot do away with uh, the Catholic faith, you know, do away with the Catholic faith and uh, really, you know, this whole connection with discovering America, sciences, all these things. The only option you have is to tarnish it, you know, and the empire or the kingdom, to be more specific, that exemplify those Catholic values at that time, you know, at the highest level was Spain. Um, and obviously that became the targeted enemy. It is, by the way, the only place where Islam has actually lost Everywhere else that Islam has conquered, they have stayed. They set shop. Spain is the only case. That's why, by the way, a lot of the um, extreme Islamists still have a chip on their shoulder and they want to reconquer Spain. You know, to this day, you know, they see it. That's that's their black eye. And I'm not saying this to you know for people to brag and feel like you know boastful or anything. It's just a reality. Um, Spain is also the place where we had the first Marian bilocation, especially where a lady was still alive. Year uh, 40 A.D. As we, we talked about that story before, um, beautiful story, which, by the way, I have one of those uh, little, this came from our Basilica of Later Pillar. They sent it to me from, from the motherland. Love it, by the way. 
Um, it is the only place where Our Lady bilocated appeared to Apostle James, St. James. Uh, and uh, we know the rest of the story. In that place of Saragossa, which is named originally after Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augusta, um, that's where the pillar was built, Basilica of our pillar, that our pillar. Anyway, and it was on the October 12th, you know, their feast day. It's the same day, October 12th. In, in the Hispanic world, uh, we celebrate it not on the Monday, you know, um, we celebrate October 12th because that's the day that happened and that religious connotation, right? So anyway, back to the original point too about the black legend and all that is the only way you can attack truth is by lies and propaganda. This is nothing new. We're living it right now, actually, with mass media and all the topics that we cannot mention for obvious reasons by now. At least a lot of you know that. Um, propaganda fears truth. So our responsibility as Catholic is always respond with truth and courage, right? And thank God he always provides a way. So this is why they attack it. You know, the, the sole reminder that the fact that there were monarchs who had confessors and those confessors advise Catholic advice and how to deal with natives or how to deal with science, like mathematics, things like that, is just bothersome for the enemies of the faith. So, we, you know, we, what we see nowadays, it was done back then, you know, propaganda and lies. So why don't we start with the true story of Columbus? Can you tell yeah. us a basic sketch of wh why why is Columbus Day Catholic? Um, great. Very quickly, I'm going to make, I'm uh, going to say a quick plug. Uh, a lot of people... I don't know if this is translated in, Spanish, in English or not. Uh, this is from a Spanish La journalist. Cruzado. Well, can you hold yeah. out? What's the, what's the title? La Cruzada, the Crossing of the Ocean. Okay. La Cruzada, um, Oceano. Oceano. Um, by a journalist named Jose Javier Esparza. He also has a, is a journalist, a historian. He's a TV show and a uh, network over there in Spain till this day. You know, it's a great political commentator. And he um, has a series of books that are really interesting. I like it because he handled, I mean, there's many sources, but one of my favorite things from him is he's usually very concerned about truth. He, he's not interested in like a rose, like a pink legend, what we call it. Like everything was great and funny and marshmallows and hugs. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, neither the black legend, you know, that's the reality. There are many, by the way, many great, great uh, historians and journalists. I'm just mentioning one uh, if you want to get your feet wet. Um, but anyway, about Columbus. So we attribute him to be a uh, uh, from Italy, Genoa. We don't know for sure. We don't even know for sure when was he born, like the exact year. And there, everything is basically in a speculation. His son, uh, Hernando, if I'm not mistaken, uh, kept those details hidden deliberately, apparently. You know, he wasn't interested in revealing that for whatever reason. So the best guess we have is that he was Genoan from Italy, uh, but we don't really know. Some people say he might be like from Catalonia. Some people say that he might be from Portugal. Either way, it doesn't matter. You know, what we know is that he was a Catholic guy. He was well-versed in the uh, skill of being a seafarer, you know, uh, which was an important skill. Well, still is to this day, but back then particularly. And what we do know is that eventually he married a noble woman, Philippa. Felipa in Spanish, um, from the Portuguese court. And that gave him access to a lot of uh, key people, resources and sponsorships and all that. They have a son, Diego, okay? And life goes on. He's making good money with the, uh, you know, novel people of Madeira and all these islands and all that. He's trading. Mind you, at that time, there was a uh, Spanish war succession before uh, for the Castile crown. And Portugal gets in and they start getting comfortable with Portugal and all that. So long story short is they end up making peace and settle, you know. And one of the treaties was, okay, Spain, you get to have the Canary Islands, you know, but we get to have the Azores and we get to explore the, you know, African coast. So the coast is soft limits for you. Okay. And Castilla was like, okay, fine deal, you know. Uh, and Portugal at that time was the naval power of the world. They had the most innovative stuff. They discovered how to sail and all these kind of things. So anyway, that's the world that Columbus is in. So he's making good money with the naval power of that time and married. He widowed. Uh, I think it was 18, 1484 or something like that. And he, by that time when he widowed, he had already presented this idea to the Portuguese court about going beyond, going west, exploring the world. He was trying to find Sipango, which is code name for Japan. 
Um, he didn't know, and, and it's like, well, according to the calculations, there is um, uh, land beyond you know, the reach and all that. We, we can find something. So he goes to the court because he was already well connected. The king in the court says, okay, let's take your numbers, and they send it to the Junta Matemática, which is like a council of mathematicians from you know different walks, like seminaries and all that, because the, the people who were uh, well-learned at that time obviously were monks and priests and priors and noble people. Well, these mathematicians come back and say, no, nah, you know, your math is wrong, and this does not really make sense. So he gets rejected, and he's there. Well, the wife dies. He no longer has a legitimate link or connection to the Portuguese novelty. And now he becomes a liability from being an asset, actually, basically overnight becomes a liability because he knows deep secrets from the you know Portuguese yeah, crown monarchy. They're afraid that he might go to England or France or whatever, even Spain, to sell those secrets. Columbus feels the pressure and literally flees overnight and ends up in southern Spain uh, and goes to a monastery called La Rávida. And this, this monastery, this is where it gets interesting. This is where the Catholic faith actually starts kicking in already, uh, very strong. There is a friar named Antonio de Marchena, Marchena in Spanish. And um, he was just like any friar, very well educated, had a passion for knowledge and you know, gospel and all those things. But he had a passion also for astronomy, which is different than astrology, obviously. Um, and he was really into it. And he was well-versed in this topic and knew like all these Greek uh, scripts and you know, mathematics and all that. And he knew something was up. Well, one night, Columbus shows up at that monastery asking for hospice. Little parenthesis, remember, Tim, uh, Tim and... and uh, that back then you had hospitals and monasteries. That was just a normal thing. You know, they were not like, you know, Super 8 or whatever it is, you know, uh, motels, things like that. Yeah, hospitality. You know, hospitality is, is a big deal, by the way. Hospitality in, in the Hispanic culture. Yes. But anyway, so he asked for hospitality and they let him in. And the two get to know each other. Who is this man with this kid? All he's asking uh, Columbus is asking, hey, can I have some bread and water for my child? Yeah, absolutely. And so they fed him, you know, they host him. And Fray uh, Marchena starts talking to Columbus and Columbus starts saying, hey, you know what? This is my idea. This is my project, my widower, but Portugal didn't care about me. This, So he's marvel and delighted. He's like, dude, this is awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> What do you think I've been thinking about this? You know, what, what's what's dude? This is awesome in Spanish. In Spanish is asombroso. Que padre. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like he's marveled by it. And uh, they start talking long, you know, spending time and all this. Well, it just happens to be that Fray Marchena is well connected with the uh, Duke of Medina Sidonia, which is a very important uh, uh, noble, you know, uh, family and other people. Um, so he's like, okay, you know, they started like sorting things out. And, um, there is a key person that Fray Marchena actually gets to know him. You know, uh, that was, we're talking about 18, 1498, pardon, sorry, sorry, 1484, 1485, give or take, you know, that time frame. Um, so after a while, Marchena actually introduces Columbus to another priest, another friar named Hernando de Talavera. And I need y'all to remember that name because Talavera happens to be the confessor of Queen Isabel of Castile. Now, that's a different story for a different time. I'm just going to, you know, synthesize this thing. But Queen Isabella went through many different confessors. She was looking for a specific godly confessor. That was the confessor. You know what I'm saying? That's a very, very interesting. We can talk about it later. Uh, he was a main influence in Isabella's thought, like any confessor, by the way, uh, or it should be. And uh, he just happens to know uh, Marchena. So Marchena says, hey, brother, guess what? I got a really interesting guy that you ought to meet. Okay. So they arranged a meeting. And eventually the guy is like, this, this is pretty legit. You know, mind you, what's going on in Spain at that time is... There is, they just finished a war of succession. So, you know, uh, Queen Isabel and Ferdinand are now the monarchs. They're also reconquering Granada, you know, southern Spain. All this happened at the same time, which is insane. I mean, if you think of all these things that are going on simultaneously. Um, 
And then he's like, okay, well, I'm going to arrange a meeting uh, in front of the royal court. So Columbus goes there and presents his plans to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. They're like, that's interesting. That sounds fairly interesting. Let's send it to our scholars in Salamanca. Again, the religious aspects. The court in Salamanca reviews, and just as you know, the court in Portugal, the, the, the synod of mathematicians, they say, your math is off. But that's all they say. You know, like, they say, no. Queen Isabella, instead of, the, the, here's the key difference between Portugal and Spain in that, you know, where, where it changed the course of history, where Portugal said, oh, well, whatever, you're wrong, you know. Um, Queen Isabella said, all right, we'll revisit this project but first we need to finish conquering or taking over Granada. Columbus is like, oh, snap, that's that's going to be a while. And monarchs tend to forget, you know, that they don't care, like politicians or something. It's like, well, um, well, seven years, you know, go by. And we know 1491, uh, that the takeover of Granada happens. And Queen Isabella, faithful to her word, like any good Christian ought to be, uh, she calls back Columbus. Hey. We left some pending business. Let's talk about this now. Uh, they were, by the way, broke at that time. Uh, the cream because wars are costly. And uh, somehow they figure out a way to get funds and arrange. Columbus presents his plan. And they modify the math, obviously. And uh, things get squared out. And she gives the approval. One of the greatest mysteries for us is why did Queen Isabella like not dismiss uh, Columbus's plan. Like, well, what is it that she thought, you know what, there's something here. I don't know, she was a very, because she was a very pious woman and she was also a very practical woman. It's a great combination we rarely see throughout history. Somebody who understands the world for what it is, but at the same time doesn't forget, is rooted deeply. If we know something about Queen Isabella, it was she was deeply rooted in the Catholic faith. That's what, that's what shaped uh, her view, her world. I have a hypothesis, and I'm going to just reiterate this. Personal hypothesis not backed up by any data at all. Uh, but I think that when somebody, Timothy, uh, spends time in devotion, like adoration, for example, and, and engaging with the sacraments, often, you know, more than is required, inevitably that's going to permeate your soul. And the way your soul is affected, it will modify the way you perceive the world. Um I think, um, in other words, you see clearer than, than if you were not frequenting the sacraments because it's spiritual food. My hypothesis, obviously not even a theory, is that Queen Isabella's devotion and pious life enable her to see things clearer than a lot of people who are not as, you know, um, engaged in the sacraments. You know, I can be off and I restate this as a personal opinion has no backup or anything like that. But whatever the reason, uh, Queen Isabella understands that there's something special. And Christopher Columbus was a pretty skilled guy also, really good at like um, um, just with words and you know, kind of, you know, I'm not want to say a sly, but he was a really good guy with words. And he understood and could read uh, Queen Isabella very well, which is, I'm going to, if I try to convince Queen Isabella, that we're going to find lands and we're going to be powerful and all these things. I'm not going to go anywhere. So Columbus said, hey, there might be new lands and new territory and opportunities to evangelize. And that was the key word because Queen Isabella wanted to expand the faith. That was kind of like her personal mission is we want to make more Catholics. We want to expand. We want to be the light of Christendom in the West, in Europe. So Columbus detected that, and that's kind of how he got her attention. And uh, eventually, seven years later, after the conquer of Granada, you know, they went back to business and got the finance to sell for the Americas. Now, before we go on to the epic moment of October 12th, 1492, yeah. can you tell us about Christopher Columbus's piety? Because he's often made out to be just a power-hungry guy. Like, what, what is he all about? What's his motivation? Well, obviously, he's a guy who's passionate about knowledge, uh, and it's easy for us to born, uh, to tarnish his legacy. But mind y'all, Columbus, even during his sail, um, he asked often for fasted prayer when things were also getting rough. That's not usually the first response of somebody who's not strong in the faith. Um, 
you know, he prayed a lot. He went to monasteries. He seeked religious advice. Um, the guy wasn't perfect. Obviously, he wasn't perfect. I'm not trying to, you know, sugarcoat his uh, mistakes or even evil acts, whatever they might be. Just like all of us, you know, we're sinners at the end of the day. But one thing's for sure, Columbus, because I know people say, well, he was just a recent convert and all that. That's nonsense. I mean, the guy lived the Catholic faith. He taught the Catholic faith. His kids were Catholic. The uh, Our Lady was very important to Christopher Columbus, by the way. And the fact that he had a vigil on October 11th before um, uh, finding land the next day uh, speaks of his devotion. Okay. So, so there's a great deal of evidence in the documents that he was pious in so far as but may like yeah. it sounds like what you're saying he wasn't a saint of course but he was certainly pious yes. like he wasn't just like a, a totally evil man no uh, you know just totally you know he, he was like like most of us most of us are not saints most of us are a complex mixture of good and yes. evil you know we, we do good things sometimes we do bad things sometimes so okay so he's not a saint but he's pious okay so tell us about the the voyage uh here we i think it's august 1492 Mm -hmm. Tell us about the voyage and the discovery. So they part from uh, Palos port in Spain. Palos is in southern Spain. And that was an important port during the uh, conflicts with Portugal because a lot of uh, gangs, you know, like literally almost like pirate type of gangs rose up and they were boycotting Portuguese ships and all that. Well, once they found peace, there's nothing going on. Well, the port started expanding from commerce and that was the place to uh, leave through three ships, La Niña, La Pinta, and Santa Maria, or Santa Maria. They go, and they get shipwrecked, and just things, you know, trials and tribulations, in other words. And they end up in the Canary Islands, which uh, from there they resupply, and they go, and eventually, after 29 days, uh, they find land in San Salvador, nowadays Bahamas, on October 12th. Before actually they arrive in Bahamas, because there was mutiny along the. This is, we're talking about people who are like, you know, voyaging, voyaging to the unknown. Uh, it's uh, easy for us to say, like, well, you know, they should have done this, this, and that. It's like, first of all, most of us are not sea people. You know, we're not used to the ocean. It's very intimidating. Second of all, is um, we tend to see history with our own lenses rather than you know be in their shoes so they're going through this voyage and columbus is running out of rations and provisions they're really far they have no idea what, what's next um in columbus at the very end you know because there's a mutiny going on uh, boiling you know you can sense it in the air at the very end and columbus basically like prays and asks for a visual and prays our lady you know it's like well if we don't find land by tomorrow, we're going to have to go back or something. Or I'm going to die. And tomorrow, that tomorrow, man, October 12th, our feast of Our Lady of Pillar. Oh, surprise, surprise. You know, uh, two in the morning, they found land. You know, they spotted land. Uh, and, and the rest is history. And they were very happy. They land in San Salvador. One of the things um, that happened that, you know, strikes me a lot, that, you know, caught my attention was, when Columbus arrived in one of the, let's say, black legends we hear nowadays is that, oh, he was just a ravaging maniac killing natives. Not really. Uh, and even, or he was racist. Not, not really, actually. And you see his records. He describes the natives as actually beautiful people. They're you know, slender and nice and, you know, fit and all that. Like, they're naked. You know, they don't know those things like, we you know, shame and all that. But they're, like, noble, good, you know, courageous people. And they're beautiful looking on top of that. So he wasn't necessarily this. Like, we hear the narrative that, you know, he was describing them with, you know, disrespect and all. That's not even true at all. And he said they don't know because he didn't arrive in Mexico. Obviously, he arrived in the Caribbean. It's like they don't have metal working. They don't know blacksmith, obviously, anything like that. Uh, in fact, they show him, it's like, this is a sword we use. And the natives have never seen one of those things. They even, some of them by accident, grab them by the wrong end. And they got, you know, a little cut and all that. So they try to, it's like, oh, they don't know these things. You know, we got to, and they discover this new world. Um, it's a tropical paradise. They were thinking they originally, when they arrived, this is Japan. So we need to talk to the Khan or the emperor. Well, this is not they don't look like Japanese. This does not look like Japan. Um, there's probably not a con here. This is just some sort of land that we don't know. 
And that's when they claim it in the name of the uh, the monarch of Spain. Because you don't go, um, and, and even back then, you don't go, let's say, to China or Japan or France and just say, hey, okay, I claim this land for Spain or Portugal, or whatever, Italy. This is already taken, right? Uh, back then, it's like, what's going on here? There's no chief... Nothing. There's not a there's not a state, at least as a European concept of state. You know, like just, we don't, so that's why they uh, they claim it in the name of Spain, uh, and, and uh, it belongs to. It. Now let, let me just pause here in a minute because, Luis, you know you know Spanish and you know English, and yeah. what I've gathered is that the English sources and especially the scholars who don't know Spanish, they have a particular view of Christopher Columbus and this whole story because that's been as we've discussed in the show mm -hmm. that whatever was even slightly wrong with Spain at all was magnified yeah. by the Anglican propaganda machine mm -hmm. that was operated at full speed since the 1550s. Yeah. And they've been going for 500 years ever since. So everything in English has been tarnished with an anti-Spanish bias because they were political enemies. Yeah. So everything in scholarship, even to this day, everything in English. So, when you read the Spanish sources and you read all the Spanish scholars, do we have the, a different picture then of this whole thing? Yeah. And like anything else, we have also the centers and uh, the, the key success of the English propaganda is that they have resources and they can buy journalists and historians so they can determine the text, you know, so you have to find outside of the official government narratives, the, the sources, and you have actually, there's plenty of historians, scholar historians like Alberto Barcena, uh, like I mentioned, Sparza. Um, there's many others right now that, that don't come to mind that legitimate, you know, certified, now Guillermo Perez Galicia, among others, there's many, who, Patricio Lons, who actually with documents they can show you uh, that the propaganda is just lying. History is complex, Timothy, you know, because it's a two-way highway. You find also a lot of uh, anti-Americanism sometimes or anti-Anglo, uh, uh, say, sometimes in the Hispanic countries, which is nonsense, to be honest. Um, it's based on an emotional reaction rather than facts. Uh, let me give you a quick example. You know, um, one of the things I talked to the historian John Mayer the other day was uh, the controversial topic of Freemasonry. Obviously, we're Catholic, so that's uh, irreconcilable, but there's a difference between Hispanic Freemasonry and Anglo or French Freemasonry. So the Hispanic Freemasonry is definitely more militant or historically has been more militant than the Anglo version, at least here in the United States. One of the paradoxes right now is where you find a lot of the Hispanic world disdain for the Anglo world. I often tell them, well, you may have all the disdain you want, but this is the place actually where we're still celebrating masses. You haven't had a mass in a year, right? So it's like... Um, you, you know, history is complex and it's difficult. It's, it's not so simple as just black and white sometimes or preaching to the choir because at the end of the day, we're humans. So it's like, how can it be that your country, which is a his, uh, Catholic heritage country, has, has been more hostile to the faith than the supposed, you know, bedrock of Freemasonry right now? So it's just, you know, does that make, you know, Freemasonry right? Of course not. But you, we get the point. Like sometimes things hurt. Yeah, yeah. There's different forms of Freemasonry. It's not, it's not a, yeah. like a huge bureaucratic yeah. uh, conspiracy from top down. There's yeah. different Freemasonries. There's actually pious Catholics who are part of Freemasonry. Anyways, that's yeah. a whole other story. Yeah. But let me bring up, uh, <clears throat> let me bring up this text, which is called "Unsettling Truths: The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery" by Mark Charles and Sung Chan Ra. And in this text. They are basically, I think these are these guys are both Protestant. Um, and, and in this text, they're critiquing the what they call the doctrine of discovery, which which what they say on page 15, they call it they say, from a theological perspective, the legal and political role of the doctrine of discovery is rooted in a dysfunctional theological imagination that shaped the European colonial settler worldview. King Alfonso of Spain was the viewed through this doctrine as the true image bearer of God. And he held the right to discover the land and pass along to the rights of his children. Alfonso would would operate as an agent of God, while the conquered and enslaved people would have no agency before God. So he makes reference to various papal bulls, which was ceding the land to uh, various European kings. And it was saying to conquer and subdue and enslave or make them slave, basically. Um, and um, can you illuminate 
better for us? How are we to understand this concept of colonialism, basically? As you said, because basically what he's saying, what they're saying is you cannot discover lands that are already inhabited. So how, how can Christopher Columbus really discover San Salvador if it's already inhabited? And how can he claim it for the king if it already has people? Well, in order to claim that, it has to be like if, if you don't want to have a legitimate claim to something, uh, it has to be at least organized, right? There's no organized state in the Americas. The closest thing we had were two empires, we, which discussed before, which were the Aztecs and the Incans. And the way, uh, which reminded me of a great talk you gave a while back uh, about how those, the Roman Empire expanded using cultos and all these things, it was very similar going actually in the Aztec, you know, through oppression and slavery. So that was just through slavery. I think actually the premise, Timothy, here is parting from the wrong um, concept. If, if you notice the terms they use, colonialism, well, first of all, let's stop right there. And I mentioned that before is in a Catholic perspective, uh, first of all, you cannot own a Christian. That's just, you know, canon law. Uh, you cannot own a slave that is a Christian by default. You know, that's that's not the way it works. That was for the Moors, you know, the Muslims and all that, but not for us. Um, and... Second of all is colonies don't have rights, which is the whole point why we exist in the United States of America, because we had no rights. We still bear responsibilities. So we say thank you, England, but no thanks. And I'm so glad for it. Um, but uh, with Spain, you have vice royalties, literally an extension of the kingdom. So in other words, is you were a Spanish in the Americas as a Spanish from Europe. You know, you're exactly the same. And literally, we look at the records, we see Indians who taught in Spain, you know, what were educated and all that, and they were taught. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying the, 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 the Indians that Christopher Columbus, those Indians went back to Spain and taught in Spain? Eventually, obviously, once they set shop in, you know, monasteries and universities, yeah, there were Indians and intellectuals that went to Spain uh, and taught, and there were Spanish courts, they were royals. In fact, there's a little side note. Oh, that, yeah, that's the, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, like right? the family of Montezuma, descendants, yeah. literally, yeah, yeah. they're nobled in Spain till this day. So, oh, wait, wait, tell, tell the viewers, who is Montezuma? Montezuma was... And then what was the occasion of this... There was a comment made publicly, yes. right, recently? Yes. Tell the story, please. Well, Montezuma obviously was the Mexican emperor, uh, Mexican, the Aztec emperor, you know, during the height of the Aztec empire. And um, his lineage and Cortes's lineage, you know, got mixed. Well, the descendants, you know, became uh, wealthy and survived. Till this day, they're living in Spain, uh, two of their descendants. They have noble titles, you know. It's not like they're just like, okay, we're going to host you here. You're going to be a little pet. No, no. Like, actually, they're important people up there. And... A couple of years ago, President Obrador from uh, Mexico, uh, which is a hard-leaning left guy, uh, demanded, again, an apology to Spain for conquering Mexico. And the descendants of Montezuma themselves came up publicly and said, this is a bunch of nonsense. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I am actually a descendant of the Indians, you know. <laughs> It's like you have your name, your last name, Lopez Obrador, is as Spanish as he gets, brother. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you might be born in Mexico, but it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, anyway. I, th I think that says it all. I mean, there's, yeah. uh, you know, if, if it, if these, if these authors are really understanding these papal bulls properly, because what they understand, they think that all the Spanish just came, they came to just enslave the Indians. No. Well, if they were just, I mean, the enslavement didn't happen. It was an abuse. As you we pointed out before, this was, there were laws on the books in the very beginning to protect the Indians. And as you said, Queen Isabella looked at them like her own children, wanted yeah. to protect them and, and evangelize them and baptize them. And, but if you were, if it was really so racist, why did they all marry each other? And then why did they bring them all to Spain and, and give them noble titles? And to this day, that we've got nobility. Who can rebuke this? Uh... <laughs> well, get this. You know, um, this is a different mindset. And I, um, I'm not trying to pile on Protestants because, A, I have family who are Protestants. I know Protestantism fairly well. I'm thankful and grateful for what they helped me in my life. I'm not interested in bashing anybody. That's not... We don't do that as Catholics anyway, right? We, but... At that time, like that Puritanism, um, the mindset was different. We're going to create a new Jerusalem. So we're going to start from scratch. And we need to wipe off everything that is around so we can start from scratch. Usually, often, sadly, we see patterns the same way with cults and all that. I'm not saying that they were cultish. I'm just saying, like, you know, that's a common theme. 
with Queen Isabella, actually, you see on, on, on his testament, on his will, on her testament, his will, is Spaniards, please intermarry, you know, uh, and have children and make more Spaniards and evangelize. You know, it's an encouragement uh, that everybody carry on. We're talking about basic human rights that they were not, to put it in context, you know, I, again, I love America. This is my country, and this is where I settle, and I'm grateful for but things that we're not having this conversation in America until centuries later. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, while Spain already had yeah. like the 1500s. Yeah, Spain you know, outlawed like, slavery in the 1500s. It's the like, United States yeah. outlawed slavery in 1865. What was that? Yeah. Something and like, and so 300 like, yeah. years, 350 yeah. years before the times. Uh, so all of all all Mexicans and Hispanics are mestizos. They're mixed race between Spanish and Indian blood. They're all mixed. They're one big family. In America, too, honestly, I mean, they're mysterious. It's just they don't, they don't recognize it publicly often because I know, like, you know, I, I have a lot of people who have Indian blood and descent, and they was at that time with a the registry, they were just not open about it because it was a stigma, whereas here in, in, in the Hispanic world was not. When we see the failures of either empire, um, sometimes it's like, in this case, Spain, is not necessarily because the document said so. It's like saying, well, the church condones abuses. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's actually the opposite. We, if the church condemns it, the fact that people disobey that teaching, well, that's a different story, right? Well, it's the same thing here in Spain. Like, well, Spain didn't approve this, but sometimes things happen, sadly. And hopefully, and they got corrected often. You know, that was the whole point. So the idea at the end of the day is the Christian kingdom. Why will Spain anyway care so much about evangelizing? Because that's the million dollar question at the end of the day. You know, will Spain understood something that this is the whole point I'm trying to do video series with, you know, and interviews and whatnot. This is not about us becoming Spaniards with all the respect to Spain and my love that they have. This is about us understanding the mindset of a Spaniard. Spain understood from the get-go is we're the place of the first Marian by location. That's a privilege. We're the, the place of the Marian promise because Mary, our blessed mother, told St. James, this place will be one day a great place that evangelized the world. That promise came 1,500 years later, but I mean, it came to fulfillment. Uh, so the Spanish understood that. They understood also what it's like to live under more uh, Muslim occupation. So they were clear and their mindset is either we embrace the faith or we get lost throughout history. We're going to disappear. There's not going to be any of us. There's only two choices. We cannot be mild Catholic. We cannot be just lukewarm. It's like we either go whole hog or nothing. All right. Uh, so that's the thing. For us now, we're in a very crucial moment in history, Westerners, uh, especially here in America, that we need to make that decision to. We need to make that call. The, the time is right for us to do that. And thankfully, we have that example and that legacy that Spain left on us. It's not a perfect legacy because we're humans. There's not such thing as a perfect legacy for us. The only perfect legacy is Christ and the Gospels. Uh, but outside of that is we have a good pattern to follow and improve. And this is what I'm so uh, pumped by at the times we live where most people lose hope. I'm like, no, this is the time actually to embrace the cross and, uh, and push forward. Absolutely. Uh, Katie points out Christopher means Christ bearer. Saint Saint Christopher is is the one who uh, there was the the legend of Saint Christopher is he that um, Christ child yeah how does it go Christ child appeared to him and he carried him across the water I think yeah he was a tall guy yeah and, and yeah so that's water. exactly what Christopher Columbus says he cr carried Christ across the water yeah and his flagship was Saint Mary of the Santa Maria of the Immaculate Conception yeah and he names the island San Salvador and this because it is through him that the gospel has come to the americas mind you it is not too long after that we we have the protestant revolt and we lost a big chunk of christians from northern europe but we gained a bunch of christians uh across the ocean and really what's keeping the faith strong not to brag or anything is us in this side of the atlantic at least for now you know the united states uh, often it's not seen as an important Catholic country because we have Protestant origins, but I tell them it's like the fourth largest Catholic body in the world. Um, it's uh, financially even the most important Catholic country and contribution-wise, you know, in the world. Uh, there's a lot of great things. We have great contributors. St. Anne Seton, you know, Fulton Sheen, all this. Like, uh, it's an important place right here uh, in right now. 
uh, Catholicism of all places. And I say this with the utmost respect. But of all places, uh, what I've seen, the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like fervent faith that I'm seeing is in the United States. That's a matter of fact, from Catholics. This is not a diss to like any other Hispanic country, but it's like, you know, it is important for us to keep in mind that all of this happened because a friar listened to somebody begging for bread and water one late night in, four, in 1484 uh, and decided to say, hey, let's give this a try and decided to connect it with important uh, people in a royal court in a country that was kicking Islam out of their land. Yeah, so the um, the interesting thing is that with the discoveries and the 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 way that the Europeans understood the the Catholics understood mm -hmm. what it means to be a monarch. Yeah. They they understood monarchy as the act Christ washing the feet of his disciples. That's yeah. what they understood monarchy as. So when they place a Spanish flag in San Salvador, they say, "I'm going to take." take care of these peoples. I'm going to baptize them. I'm going to catechize them. I'm going to teach them how to work together in, in a polity and we'll all become one family. That's <laughs> like, and, uh, now, were there evil men among them? Yes, there were evil men among them who abused this notion and wanted to just enslave Indians, and they did. And henceforth, there was a constant battle between the Catholics and the bad Catholics who were yeah. just trying to enslave the Indians and then all the good Catholics, priests and friars who were trying to evangelize because evangeliz evangelizing the Indians and enslaving the Indians is obviously the opposite social force. It's, it's, a, it's a tough task. And I mean, Ryan people is we're talking about outside of Europe, you know, and, and the Roman thought, which Spain exemplified the closest thing to the Roman thought. Um, Outside of that realm, the concept of law and order was pretty much unheard of or no. In other words, is Roman thought gave us the idea that you can appeal to the law to defend yourself against somebody who's more powerful. The church refined that, obviously, through the Middle Ages, and Spain picked up on that. There is not such thing as suing the Montezuma, you know, with the Aztec Empire, whatever it is. You know, it was the law of the might, you know, might makes law right. Law of power, yeah. So uh, here comes Spain and say, like, no, might does not make right. This is the value we go on. You're part of this value system, and we have to teach that. That sounds a lot easier nowadays as Westerners living in the comfort of our homes with Wi-Fi and AC. Imagine doing that to people who have never, ever experienced anything like that let alone the gospel. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, uh, it was quite a feat, to be honest. So it's a lot easier to say, you know what? Let's just do away with this tribe. Let's kill him or push him off from their lands. And we're going to set shop from the start. And we're going to have our own little thing, you know, going to modify our own. That way we don't have to deal with him. You know what I'm saying? One takes, you know, the problem is that one has a, a, a conscious guilt, you know, because they're like, man, we did really bad to the Indians, you know. And the other one's like, well, you know, here we are. Yeah, it's, it's basically a response. Uh, an understanding of the responsibility of being a Christian. And, and it's like every Christian has a responsibility to place the flag of Christ, place the cross as the standard yeah. of authority over any other person or community, because mm -hmm. it's our responsibility because we have the truth. It's our responsibility to desire the good of other souls and yeah. the good of other communities. And so, it's not saying that we're better. It's mm -hmm. saying that because of God's grace, we've received baptism and the faith because of God, not because I'm good, because God is, is merciful to sinners. Mm -hmm. I have the truth. And because I have the truth, I have a responsibility to non-Christians and I have responsibility to give them the cross for their own good. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the way it happened, like you mentioned before, it wasn't perfect. No, obviously it was not perfect, but that was the idea in it's backed up by data. At the end of the day, you look at it. Okay, show me the data. Is look at the, the uh, World Heritage cultural sites in Hispanic countries. You know, they're all left by Spain. Where do people want to go? Uh, Guanajuato in Mexico. You know, because it's like, oh, it's colonial. They say like it was basically it looks like Spain. Well, guess who built it? Right? Like it's this. Um, you you have to build monasteries. You have to build churches. You have to build schools. All these things. Uh, that takes investment and money. It's not just words. And, you know, we're not preaching only. Not that preaching there's anything wrong with it. But it's like 
it was a commitment, you know, and after uh, centuries of investment, we are forgetting about that legacy. The, the, the enemies of the faith, because I know we're run, running out of time, the enemies of the faith are obsessed with erasing that legacy. And the narrative alone is not doing it. That's why they want to tear down statues and burn churches, because that's still a testimony. You can see the legacy of St. Junipero Serra in California till this day. And it bothers him because that's what evil is. Evil, as you know, Timothy, evil is bothered by the presence of anything that is good. It's, it cannot coexist. So that's the whole point. And they're going to use and they're using media. Our job is more than protect the temples and the statues, which is you know important, is we got to know who we are. I tell my daughters, Timothy, almost daily, I tell them, remember, you're the descendants of Christians. Don't forget who you are. And you hopefully will perpetuate that legacy. And it's like uh, they got to understand because if I don't reinforce that, especially that's, by the way, uh, the school system is going to do it or the culture or TikTok. I don't care, whatever. Something else outside of Christ. Their identity is in Christ, not even in me, actually. So uh, that's important for us now in, in, in this uh, uh, important time of history. Roberto Ramos says, any history books that you'd recommend that share the truths through a Catholic perspective? Uh, so Spanish and English, I guess. Mm -hmm. We've got a few Spanish speakers on the chat here. Yeah, uh, Pedro Insua uh, wrote a nice book, 1492, and I think there's an English translation as well. There are several ones. I think in one of the series that we did uh, a while back, I said, uh, sent a bunch of links. If not, I'll you know send the links again through either my Twitter feed or whatever it is that you guys want. I'd love to do that. I think, I'm, yeah, if you go, Roberto, down to the links, if you just go to Catholic Empire Part 1 or Part yeah. 2, pretty sure I put those in the in the notes there. Yeah. Um, so crazy Cajun Ecuador says Hispanic America was not colonized. It was Spain. It was converted. It's different than colonization. Colonization requires uh, force and submission and you don't have any rights. Uh, conversion is actually it's an act of the will. And like I said before in the series, it was more than Spain, Our Lady. Our Lady in Guadalupe was the key uh, aspect here in converting the uh, locals and able to create this new world, this new race. Uh, and that's there's uh, no coincidence that Our Lady Guadalupe is empress of the whole continent, not just Mexico. Absolutely. Well, why don't I bring up, uh, I had the painting that I found for this whole broadcast. I was trying to find the, oh, here it is. Okay, I got it. So if anybody knows where this painting came, because I just found this on the internet. I'm pretty, sure it's, I'm pretty sure it's Baroque era, which is the same era. But in this painting really shows what, how, how did Spain understand what they were doing? I think this is great for this because it really shows us visually. Yeah. <clears throat> so as you can see in this painting, first of all, you notice that you have white people and brown people all mm -hmm. together worshiping the same God. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're all together under one altar worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, if you look <clears throat> up to the left, you have, here's what it was like under the Aztecs. Yeah. And we didn't even go, go into all the gory details. Oh, uh, brother, no. Yeah. Tens of thousands of human sacrifices per year. Child, including. Child sacrifices. Uh, they would torture children because they thought the, the tears of children would help the rain come down. Uh, absolutely insane, horrendous. So this is what uh, they were doing. They would they would kill them, cut out their hearts, throw them down. Uh, and, hey, Luis, you said that if you watch the movie Apocalypto, it's like that except worse. Yeah. And <laughs> so. they will wear sometimes their skins on top of that. And they had a concept of communion. Weirdly enough, you know, very quickly, they had an understanding of communion. It was the wrong twisted understanding. So once the Spanish explained to them, like, hey, hold on, you know, this is how you actually commune with God through the Eucharist. The Aztecs like, so nobody has to die? No. Why? Because God died for us. Oh, that, I, we can deal with that. You know, that sounds pretty good. So, uh, yeah, that was a key uh, aspect. The Eucharist, right. once again. Yeah. So then, so here's here's what life was like under the Aztec, and then then the centrality of the Holy Mass, yeah, which then brings together both of these races. They marry each other, 
Yeah. And then they create families and civilizations. Yes. And that's how, that's how the Spain, that's how Spanish understood what they were doing is that they're, they're creating one family uh, as, as St. Paul says about Jew and Gentile way yeah. back in the first century. Um, and this is the type of thing where, I, I mean, when you were, the demons drove them to human sacrifice because mm -hmm. they were economically vulnerable. Mm -hmm. when, when you have, when you have a society where you don't have certain technologies or certain things, certain ways to handle crops or whatever, and you're starving, uh, you can be manipulated by demons to killing children. If, you know, if you think you're overpopulated, you can't afford the children or you're into some child sacrifice like the Aztecs were. And that's because of certain things. So there's a certain, there's not only the gospel freedom, which is, which is, you know, the slavery to Satan, but there's also just sharing the technology and things that the Europeans had already developed, sharing mm -hmm. those things and then learning, learning for the Indians now, bringing a civilization together. So not only do you not kill children because, it's morally wrong. You also don't even have a, an economic uh, situation where that would be a pro, you know, you'd be in a situation where you would, you know, commit an abortion. Like people yeah. say today, people are in, you know, uh, because we have a break breakdown of civilization, breakdown of Catholicism, we have situations where people feel helpless. Well, this is what they're trying to create. They're trying, trying to stay to civilization where people don't feel helpless. They're supported. They're, they're one family. So, I, I love this painting. And if anybody knows where this painting came from, who painted this, please contact me because I don't know who it was, but I thought the painting really, uh, really sums it all up. Catholicism teaches us one of the beautiful things is, I'm not saying it's the only one, but it's like uh, the, the fellowship, the brotherhood that, that God created for us. We're all part of the same family. And I don't care whether you speak French, Spanish, English, or whatever European language. It makes absolutely no sense to denounce the contributions of our European ancestors in their own language. While we think like Christians, even if you're not a professing one, it's our frame of view and reference. Uh, what you know, it's just it's a cynical at best. You know what I'm saying? And uh, this is something we got important and remember. Now, key difference very quickly is Catholicism did not erase indigenous cultures. There's a lot of words like tomate, for example, chocolate, chocolate, that actually are part of the, the Spanish vocabulary. There are Those are indigenous words. They're not Spanish words. So uh, anything that has to do, whether it's America, Mexico, or Quebec, I don't care, um, you have that Christian European legacy. And it's beautiful, and we should embrace it, and we should be proud and defend it, and most importantly, pass it along. In mariachi, very quickly, is European instruments. It's a symphony. So if you like mariachi and you can't like mariachi and denounce Spain, well, guess who brought those instruments? Guess who taught that music theory? Well, certainly not the Aztecs. I could, I'll tell you that. So, um, you know, the lesson here for us is we got to remember who we are and we got to defend that legacy, whether it's from Spain or whoever else, Portuguese, English, French, I don't care. You know, as long as it's Catholic, it's worth embracing and protecting. Excellent. Well, wonderful words to close this out. Let's let's have a pater noster. Let's pray for uh, all peoples of the Americas, uh, mm -hmm. as Our Lady of Guadalupe is the Empress of the Americas. And so this is a great day for all people of the Americas, north and south, to celebrate the coming of the gospel, the coming of Christ, and the Christ bearer, Christopher Columbus. In nomine Patris, Fili, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Amen. Pater noster qui es in cedis, sanctificeto nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Pane nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et dimiti nobis debita nostra, sicut nos dimitibus debitoribus nostris. Enenos inducas in tentationem, se libranos a malo. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. Viva Cristo Rey. Viva Cristo Rey y la Virgen Amen. de Guadalupe. Ah, nomen patres, filis, spiritus sancti. Amen. Oh.